life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Very good evening, everybody. Welcome along to the Weekend Variety Wireless, if you've just tuned in. And a special hello if you're listening to the podcast, the podcast hour by hour. Another show tomorrow night from 8 till midnight. We'll be all over the International Film Festival, uh, starting off, oh, well, speak with James Crute, of course, uh, which is brilliant. Uh, but we're going to have Bill Gosden in next week. Fingers crossed. 50 years of the New Zealand International Film Festival. And they've had some scandals, some dramas, films being banned. Have there been fights? Has there been a riot? I think there have been walkouts. Also, on a visual tip, uh, there's the World Press Ph uh, Photographic Exhibition. It's starting on... It started today, the 30th of... Uh, June. It's on in Auckland and it's on at the Smith & Coe Gallery space. I've never been there. Uh, apparently the sixth floor of Smith & Coe is a very famous building. If you're visiting Auckland, do go see. Uh, photojournalism, one often thinks of, you know, war stuff, the front line, the grim and the powerful. And we know how powerful an image can be and also how they can be misused. But, oh, thank the Lord Jesus that we're speaking to the sporty guy because the sports photography is just as compelling, can be, and at least we're not looking at starving children or people on a war zone. His name is Stephen McCarthy and coming to us all the way from Dublin. Stephen, welcome to Radio Live. Thanks very much for having me on, Graham. Thank you. The World Press Photo Exhibition. How do you get to be in it? Did you enter or did someone tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, Stephen, you're in? <laughs> so the World Press Photo Foundation, they have, a, have this competition every year. It's going on, I'm not sure, a number of years. We're going for a long, long time. And as a press photographer and a sports photographer, it is the pinnacle of, of our career. Well, maybe as a sports photographer, it's the pinnacle. Uh, maybe the news guys have a chance of winning a Pulitzers and all this kind of stuff. But unfortunately, sport doesn't capture the, the world's imagination like that. And we don't have that much of an impact. But I do believe it's, it is as important. But maybe not, not to the extent of the message it gets across to, to the wider audience. So the competition has been there for a number of years, and every year we entered and we put a few pictures in and just say we were competitive, I suppose, and never thinking that it's possible to win it, because when you see the standard of, of content, it's, it's amazing. So like every other year, I entered thinking, that's the end of that, and we'll see. But uh, then it was, I was sitting home on a, on a Tuesday morning, I got an email to say, congratulations, you won. That was quite uh, something. Um, I couldn't believe it. And I still I kept pinching myself, nah, nah, there's somebody winding me up, and maybe I'm reading the email wrong or something like that. But no, it, it, as the day went on, the congratulations came in after they announced this on their, all their platforms, and then it was real. Not only is this of particular interest to you, because it's your photograph, it's kind of in, uh, with particular interest to New Zealand because it was taken in New Zealand during the Lions tour, playing New Zealand Maori. And uh, you can have a look at this photograph on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage and go to the gallery of a whole bunch for the photo exhibition as well. But let's talk about your photograph in particular. It is an extraordinary thing. All these clouds of steam coming up from a scrum. Beautiful. <laughs> that's right, that's right. It was, a, it was a very cold, wet night in Rotorua when, when, when the picture was taken. But a bit of the backstory is that I was uh, I worked with an Irish agency called Sports Club. So when the British and Irish Lions tour anywhere in the Southern Hemisphere, 
sports world attend. And so I've spent six weeks in New Zealand covering the lines, their ups and downs, their training, their press conferences, matches. So of the 10 games, this is one of the seven warm-up games. So they played the, the Maori All Blacks in Rotorua. I'm sure some of your listeners would have, would have watched it. It wasn't the most exciting game that we were ever at. But there was a moment, it was such a cold, damp night there, that there was a moment during the game where there was a scrum on the far side of the pitch to me just in front of the, the bleachers and the result of it was when the uh, scrum came together the body heat produced the steam and we've often seen steam rise from a scrum on cold nights but never so high so it shows the impact of the cold and the, the high temperatures of the bodies from running around during the game yeah it speaks to a lot of uh, effort and killer jewels going on and interestingly just for me it caught my eye it's in portrait form Everybody does almost everything in landscape form now. This is, it's an uppy-downy one. Good. Yeah, that's right. It, 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 just because of, I think most online platforms now accept wide pictures and that's it. Maybe Square had a push, but nobody ever accepts an upright. But from the moment I started with Sports File, with a, with a very old school boss, I suppose it could be said, and he always says, don't forget the uprights. And that's what he nearly said after, just before you got there, don't for, come back with a wide and upright. That's all I want from you, just a good wide and a good upright. So we always have this in our head. But if you did look at newspapers in Ireland, there's always an upright shape in it. So you have to cater for it. So when I saw this happening, there was, there was no question but I was going to shoot it upright because the whole shape of the image suited upright. The scrum was at the bottom, the steam was rising up, but I have no reason to shoot it wide. And if I did shoot it wide, I would have lost the impact. I would, I would, um, I would have brought in so much more rubbish into it because it would have been advertising to the left, probably players to the right that didn't suit. But it just suited it upright, and that's the, the way I saw it, and that's the way I shot it. And when you go through the exhibition, possibly the only upright in the whole exhibition. Huh, uh, huh. That's just the way the photographers wow. have come along. Everything is wide. Yeah, yeah. Do go and have a look at it on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage and, of course, the exhibition. Okay, as a sports photographer, I've covered Olympics, a lot of really high-profile high stuff. Do you get to enjoy the sport while you're working or is it work, work, work and you enjoy when you're not working? You wouldn't get the same enjoyment as if you were sitting in the front row uh, as a spectator. There's constantly pressure on. Um, you're there for a reason. You're there to do a job. The likes of, of rugby and stuff like that, you, you don't get a chance to enjoy it. You, you try and soak it up in some shape or form during the game for a moment, but you're you're constantly trying to think ahead. Am I in the right place? And then where should I be next? Or where am I going to at a particular moment in the game? And then you're also working on your laptop trying to send pictures or you're trying to you're, you're looking for a connection or something like that. Nothing ever goes so smoothly that you can relax and enjoy it. I remember years ago, the previous line, so actually it was just before the game on the sideline in Sydney, and uh, he says to me, he says, people would give the right arm for where you are today. It's one stage in the game, just soak it up. Just take a moment and appreciate where you are. And that has stuck with me, because I do, I will take a moment. Maybe when it goes quiet or something like that, maybe the ball's at the other end, I'll just, just take a moment and look around and say, wow, look at this. That's my memory of the game, that's what I'm going to take with me. Because at the time you're under you're under pressure, just uh, hundred more things going on in your head um, in terms of getting the picture and then getting the picture back to where it needs to get to. But it's when you look back, and especially like in Olympics as well, you're spending you know, the Olympics is two weeks, but you might be there for three weeks. It's very little sleep. You're probably eating crap food. You're just running from venue to venue. It's when you get home, you think, oh, okay, that was brilliant. Uh, at the time, we were kind of just counting down the days to the end because you're just so wrecked. But um, it's, it's an amazing event to be able to look back on, but we don't get the same, I suppose, level of enjoyment at the time as a spectator would. Do we lose anything with the digital format compared with the real trad film? 
Yes, I believe we have, especially in press photography, because I think that everybody's a photographer these days. Be with having a camera or having your iPhone. In the past, if there was one person with, with a with a film camera, they're more likely to get a more natural moment because the big moment now is captured by so many people that it's not natural anymore. I find, especially in sport, people are so conscious now when they step over the white line. And even before they step over the white line, even there's cameras in the dressing room now and all that. Whereas in the past, when there was only one or two photographers in a privileged position, people were more natural. Yeah, I think we have lost something in it. What we do when we look back on that, we appreciate, we always go back and white the, the film. We're not able to beat it, so that's got a hold this place in history. Hanging on to your intellectual property must be so hard in the digital age. Yeah, once you've gone online, that's it, you've lost it. You can go and try and chase it, but the value of photography is... It's gone so low now, especially online. Despite more people seeing pictures than they than, than ever before um, on these platforms, they, the rates are incredibly low. Yeah. Was it your favourite photograph that made it, or did you think uh, have you got other orphan children uh, that, that you go, oh, why didn't that one make it? <laughs> you know, the, you always get attached to pictures that you put more work into or oh, that yeah. you maybe researched more. But they might not be as good a picture, but they're the ones you get attached to. And they're the ones who say, oh, I think this is a great chance because I, I planned it for two weeks or two months. I remember going up into the, into the roof of the stadium in, in, uh, in Dunedin for one of the games against the, the warm-up games against the Highlanders. And that's one I had planned months in advance that I'd, I'd known the stadium from watching during the World Cup in Ireland to play Italy there. I was like, that's the stadium that has the roof. I need to get in there. And I got in touch with the, the guys in the NZRU and they were really great and great accommodating. And they got me access to the roof. And I was the only photographer at the time who thought about this. So when I went up there, I was like, oh, these are great pictures because they had pictures of the scrum directly overhead and line outs and stuff like this. So they were the ones I really loved, but I don't even think I entered them in the end because somebody got through to me during kind of early, later in the year and said, you know what, just because you're holding on to them because you put the effort into it, they're not as amazing pictures as what you actually have. You have much better pictures, mm. so let them go. So, yeah, you get attached to pictures, but brings back the memories of, of how hard you worked during that tour and when it was wet and cold and the elements are against you. It probably was one of my favourites, actually. One final thing about the image that's at the World Press Photo Exhibition, your image, that green, thin, thin, thin green line at the bottom, it makes it for me. It just brings it back into context. But what a good, um, and I'm sure it brings, you, it brings perspective to the image by where the grass is. Another thing that is quite unique about the, the image, especially these days, is that there's no advertising whatsoever in it. Oh, good um, God, you're right. Which is like when you go to any sports event now, you realize there's ads everywhere. So somebody wasn't doing their job, I think, on the day, or some, somebody missed that one section of the pitch where there's no ads whatsoever. And that is just one part of the, of the pitch that was no advertising. Wow, wow. Did you see that when you were taking it? At the time, I realized this is, this is very clean. This is a clean picture. There's uh -huh. no distractions. So unique is this because you're just, as soon as you step foot inside the stadium, all you're seeing is ads, but yeah. and all the way around the pitch. And you just, now often you go to stadiums, there's two sets of ads, there's two levels of ads. But yeah, this this is just whatever happened that day. Somebody slipped up and never decided not to put an ad in that section. And, and maybe the picture wouldn't have stood out if it had an ad. And especially in this World Press competition, if you look at the pictures across the board, and I'm not saying if you had an ad that would ruin the picture, that would that would rule it out of, of winning a prize. But I think it goes along with the helping towards it because that's what I think that's what the World Press is about. Yeah, it gives the subject a sense of purity anyway. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Congratulations, uh, Stephen McCarthy, photographer at the World Press Photo Exhibition. Go see Smith and Co Gallery. Thank you very much, Stephen McCarthy. All the best. Cheers. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate the time. You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Enviro News and Issues on Radio Live. Friends, you owe it to yourself and your family to leave the congested city and enjoy what nature intended you to enjoy. Each year, Forest and Bird announce their apex winners for work and conservation, usually a lifetime's worth or thereabouts. This year, the Old Blue, as it's called, it's named after the last viable female of the Black Robin, which Don Merton was intimately involved in its preservation. It's uh, There are a few hundred today. That's another story. The Old Blue Awards this year went to Roger Williams of Walkworth. A lot of organisation and conservation work in that area of Taradale Neil Eagles. But today we're speaking with Graham Lowe of Otago. First up, round of applause. Congratulations, Graham. Thank you very much. No, it was a bit of a surprise and um, I do feel honoured to be amongst many of the people that I regard as my mentors and heroes. And for someone so young, Graham? Well, no, I'm a little bit grown up now, but I got involved at a high level in Forest and Bird when I was 25, so I certainly started off young with Forest and Bird and I'd been... Well, I've been in nature conservations ever since I was a kid, really, in Sydney. I was in Christchurch when I first started with Forest and Bird and actively involved with the West Coast campaigns. I did a lot of exploring and leading a lot of people into the Paparoa National... Well, what's now the Paparoa National Park, but yeah. uh, we viewed the logging of the limestone country with damage to caves and we saw the grandeur of the Porari and Fox River canyons. That was really the formative stuff in my New Zealand life, was um, doing the West Coast stuff. Think of yourself way back then. There have been a lot of victories, but some other things have either stagnated or gone backwards. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, one of the first photographs of me in the Forest and Bird magazine was me holding a set net with um, 14 dead spotted shags that had been drowned in that set net. And unfortunately, still in Otago Harbour, you're allowed to set recreational set nets in the shags that feed in the harbour, including the newly described and quite rare and low-numbered Otago shags are exposed to that threat, and that really hasn't changed. And, of course, uh, we're looking forward to having some marine reserves in Otago. So those things are still difficult, it's great to have seen the creation of the Department of Conservation. That was another thing that the Forest and Bird Executive and Native Forest Action Council were very active asking the government to create the Department of Conservation because we saw that we needed a professional body that did nature conservation. It wasn't any good having the Forest Service protecting forests from deer and goats but at the same time logging them so-called sustainably mm. and the Lands and Survey Department destroying wetlands at the same time as managing national parks. And so those are victories. Areas of uh, your greatest concern today? Well, there's a whole heap of them. The ongoing invasion of weeds into our natural places is something where I think we got an opportunity to intervene before it's too late in many places. We've got to identify the really valuable rare plants like the so-called cook scurvy grass, which is a member of the cabbage family, which is 
endangered all around our coast. There's a whole range of species. There's two species in Otago, one of them only in Otago, and it's threatened by things like marum and lupin. And keeping beaches clean of those weeds is a very important activity. Trying to restore things after the invasion is really difficult, and of course that's the uh, predator-free New Zealand campaign, but we've got to roll it back. It's much easier to stop it before it starts. Yeah, the, the thing with weeds, people might think that, you know, you have a few weeds. Well, if there are weeds there, pull them out, but they change the whole ecosystem and play a part in the extinction, local at least, of the natural vegetation. That's right, yeah. I mean, particularly uh, the lupins on the beach, they nitrify the soil and make it suitable for other woody plants. And we've got some really rare plants in our sand dunes. And the same goes on our limestone bluffs, where I've been rousing people to campaign against boxthorn. And people really get into it. It's a most unpleasant plant. It punctures tyres. It goes through your boots. But people really get into grappling with it and heavy-hoeing and cutting off huge bundles of it from the cliffs and uh, coastlines around our area where we're protecting some really unique rare plants in the Waitaki Valley. Last time I saw you was in the Catlins and you took us through a bit of the Yellowhead Mohua conservation. It was a tremendous trip. It was a really, really neat thing to be able to experience that. We're going to replay most of that, actually, with your favourite introduction as well, with the, the roaring engine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, of course, that's one of the revolutions that's happened, is that we now are really able to take on rat plagues and stoke plagues head-on with the use of Aerial 1080. And we were really cautious around about that time of getting into whether we could actually achieve that. And we did ground control by traps, we did ground control by poison bait stations, and we just couldn't get the scale. And we found that we could safely bring mohua through aerial 1080 drops. And even better, we could actually stop rat plagues when there was abundant rats and abundant food. So we were able to stop rat plagues in their tracks. For mohua, the critical period is going to be the summer after this coming one because this summer there's going to be a massive flowering of the beech trees then there's going to be a massive influx of food into the forest when the beech seed develops and that depends on how many rats there are in May how high the rat numbers will rise and so I expect we'll be doing another 1080 operation in the Catlins in the spring of 2019 to stop the declines of the mohua. We can't actually make more of them but in the critical times we can intervene and stop all the females getting eaten by predators. It must have been at least five or six years ago we recorded in the Catlins. How are the Mohua doing, Graham, well, they're, now? Well, they're doing well. Um, they're still in their full range there. They've recovered quite a bit from the 1999 rat plague which we weren't able to treat. There's still some areas where they could build up in numbers. And the department is continuing to maintain the control there, which is great. Thanks so much for this following recording and being there for us. And congratulations on the old blue award, the Apex Conservation Award in this country. Uh, nothing to be sniffed at. That's tremendous recognition. So, Graham Lowe, nothing to do with the Queensland State of Origin side. This is LOH, if you want to look him up. Uh, congratulations. Take a bow. Thank you very much, Graham. The Weekend Variety Wireless. In Southland, there's a place called Catlins Forest Park. In fact, it takes up a fair swathe of it. And there's just gorgeous forest in here. And it's home to a particularly rare 
a particularly bright and beautiful endemic New Zealand bird, the mohua, and we've just gone through the Chloris Pass Road, sort of northwest of Owaka, and we're just at the gateway heading into the dock hut at the edge of the forest. And with us is Graham Lowe, Dock Ranger. Good day, Graham. Good morning. Beautiful day today, uh, just a bit of rain and uh, it's not particularly cold. We're just having a look across the valley, uh, a little bit of farmland, and we can see the dock hut in the distance. You're telling me the moho are nesting there? Yes, there's a nest just 30 metres behind the hut, which is very convenient for our study and very convenient for the media. And this is the Thisbe Valley, which is a tributary of the Catlins River. Mm -hmm. So this catchment we're looking at is completely forested, and it, the saddle you can just see through the mist there goes over into the McLennan River. And this is a uh, beach forest? All this is silver beech forest. We only have one of the beech trees here, it's just oh, the right. silver beech. But there's some other very interesting things about this forest is that this is the southernmost beech forest and most of the forest in the Catlins is not beech forest, it's podocarp hardwood forest. Mm -hmm. In other words, rimu trees, kamahi trees and rata. Mm. This forest is um, old growth forest. It hasn't been cut, it hasn't been burnt. Probably Maori fires came through here from Southland and that initially cleared the place. Oh. And so when I first arrived here in the uh, early 80s, this was all tussock country. Wow, OK. All right. Well, should we get in the statutory Toyota Hilux? We'll go and have a look at the setup here and the work you're doing to try and protect this unique bird. Really is a gorgeous thing, isn't it? It is. Very confiding, yeah. beautiful and sings well. And we get... So how much time do you actually spend out here, Grant? Um, at the moment, I'm spending at least a couple of days every week. Yeah. We've got two workers out in the field here. Their primary job is to find the nests and then follow their progress. Okay. This year, oh, I don't know, is it worth doing this while the engine's running? Cause, no, uh, we'll just chat while it goes. Yeah, it is fine. You can do, do it while the engine's running. One of the things I hate about, what is it, Spectrum documentaries, oh, they yeah. have these horrible soundscapes with engines and... Oh, really? Crap in the background. Oh, you hate it. Well, I'll grab it all. You'll and then, then they go up and higher and you get yeah. these, you know, articulate real men and... <laughs> <laughs> but the, particularly the soundscapes of the engines running. Right on. Right by the beach forest. Okay. Straight away we hear a mohua. Right. Really? Yeah. That was that sharp chatter. Uh-huh. Okay. That's it again. That's just its contact chatters. Mm -hmm. Make that work. So, yeah, you've got the first dead-end branch, and then behind that you've got another dead-end branch with a letterbox hole in the side. Yeah. That's where the nest is. So wow. The nest is 10 centimetres down from that letterbox hole. Okay. And that's very typical of a nest in silver beech forest. They, these trees, when they're big branches like this, and this branch is 15, 16 centimetres in diameter, right. when they break off, the wood rots, but the bark doesn't. Yeah. And so you have these hollow pipes of bark that are very, very fragile, but they're pipes. And quite often the mohua uh, chooses these as nest sites. OK. Don't get flooded. Some do fail for that. So far we haven't had any this season get okay. f fail this way. Uh, about half our nests, no, a bit more than half our nests this season in that type of site 
Other sites are holes actually in the trunks of trees, mm. not holes. Um, we think, we've got several reasons why we think there's such a strong population here. One of them is it's only Silver Beach, and Silver Beach only flowers every four to seven years. Whereas if it was mixed with other beech trees, they also flower every four to seven years, but they don't all flower at the same time. Oh, yeah. So there's fewer beech mast with the seed production, that's what mast is, is the seed production, in this forest with just one species. Now I think the bird's coming in now to visit the nest from the sound of it. Right. So you're saying that keeps the pests down? Yeah. Yeah. So there's fewer times when there's higher number of pests. Right. We also think here's the birds coming in now, those sharp chatters. Wow. So usually when the female comes back she goes into that dying foliage there and then approaches the nest then hops in. Okay. Uh, it happens reasonably quickly. Are you confident that the eggs are hatched in there? Or that yes, yes. We inspected nest? it on Saturday and it had just hatched on Saturday. We had four eggs in there but we've only got two chicks and there's still two eggs left over there. Okay. Oh, with a lot of birds when they're nesting their dietary requirements change, what is it with yellowheads? We haven't done a detailed study of that. They're primarily insectivores although when we started studying them in forests that had a richer composition, we found they also ate fruit. Mm. And for example, in this forest, I've seen them eating the fruit of lancewoods. Really? Okay. Yeah. Um, but back to this pipe, this pipe of bark. One of the reasons we think the well, who are vulnerable is only the female sits on the nest. So when the predator pokes his head in the hole, the entrance, the exit is blocked. The predator kills the female, either the stoat or the rat kills the female, and then the chicks and the eggs. And so you have all the males surviving and singing their heads off, trying to find more females. Yeah. It, can, it can sound like, a, oh, this forest is doing well. Yeah, that's why it takes two years by simple sound methods to tell whether or not the mohu are doing okay or not, because mm. the next year, after a lot of nests have been killed, you might actually have more male song mm. for the few females that are left. What's the lifespan of uh, a healthy mohua? In the Eglinton, we had a banded one that lasted 24 years. Get out. Yeah. For such a tiny bird. That's right. And Tim Flannery of Australia makes this wonderful statement. He said, if biology had been invented in the southern hemisphere, it would have been completely different. Because we, biology was invented in the northern hemisphere. Small birds don't live long. They have large clutches and they don't live long. In the southern hemisphere, even small birds live a long time and they only have small clutches because the maximum we've seen with these guys is four eggs whereas sparrows can do many more than that and starlings and so on mm. but the pipe that buzzing you hear that's the female begging from her male and her helpers to get some food so they will help feed her and they will help feed her feed the chicks she's on the nest at the moment no i don't think she is i think she's coming in okay now, with these pipes of bark, one of the other reasons we think they've survived here is when a predator comes up the outside, it makes scratching sounds which alarms the female she gets off the nest. And certainly if you touch that pipe of bark and she's on the nest, she leaves. She thinks this is no good and leaves. Mm, okay, but the eggs and the chicks have, don't have that luxury. No, it's all over for them, but she will breed again if she loses her nest, if she's alive. Yeah, up in the mistletoe up there. They're real scramblers, are they? They just yeah. uh, hang on with strong mm. claws and legs. They've got great big feet for hanging on to the branch. And you also see their tail 
there they go. There's two of them coming yeah. in three. This, so this family's got three in it. Yeah. And see the two just came together? That would be the male giving the female some food. What, the male doesn't even visit the kids, just sends a parcel to the missus to take home? Mostly. Sometimes when the chicks get large, the male will actually visit the entrance of the nest. Oh. But the male doesn't go into the nest hole. Mm. Oh, they might miss it, I don't know. You've got to be patient with this game. I really like it when we do these nest success studies because I can show people yeah. this sort of really frontline stuff. Do have to put up the uh, the snuff movies, but they're a hard watch, aren't they? You see a possum basically just eating the kokako. Oh yes, yeah. yes. Well, they were great leap forwards in our knowledge when we were able to apply time lapse video at night time and mm. find out who was actually visiting the nest and who was actually taking the eggs and doing the killing. So we knew that rats were visiting the nest, but it was the possum that actually did the killing with those kokako nests. And then the rat came along and cleaned up what remained and left rat bite marks on the eggs. But it was the possum that actually did the deed. Right. Inspector Clouseau. Yeah. With these guys, it's rats and stoats. And the natural predator is the long-tailed cuckoo. Mm -hmm. The long-tailed cuckoo, which is easily three times, probably four times as long as a mohua, somehow gets its eggs in there. Yeah. We don't know how, but before it does that, it cleans out any chicks and eggs of uh, the mohua. Here we go. Into the nest. Yes, yellowhead. Into the nest. Oh on the God. edge, on the edge, down she goes. Yep. And there's her male and her helper from last year. There she goes, she's off again. Yeah. So that's what happens when she's feeding chicks. Okay. And I was watching them the other day, they were feeding low in the horopito, the pepperwood, and getting lots of uh, caterpillars. The yellowhead, what was its, do we know its previous range? It was right through the South Island and Stewart Island in all forests. So it was in the Potocarp hardwood forests of the West Coast, it was in the Rimu forests of Stewart Island. So this is really a real shrunken range and population now, isn't it? Very much so, yeah. A quarter of the population's in the 7,000 hectares of old-growth beech forest in the Catlins. There's another quite large population in the Blue Mountains, just another 60 kilometres north of here. Then we go up to the Dart, where there's a similar population of a couple to 3,000. Mm. Then we go up to Eglinton and there's just a remnant. I think, think there's still less than 20 birds there. And that's when we've got a real wake-up, because... In two years, 1999 and 2000, it went from a couple of thousand birds down to less than 10. In the Eglinton? In the Eglinton. So even a really large population spread over probably a couple of thousand hectares. When there's a real rat plague on, it got wiped out. Before that, we thought it was just stoats doing the trick, but uh, mm. the rats are able to somehow get the males as well as the females. Wow. And it took us a lot of... Uh, careful reading of old notes to find out that there were actually mohua on Stewart Island over a hundred years ago and of course Stewart Island's never had stoats it's only ever had rats from the Europeans mm. and Maori mm. the rat numbers are much higher in Potocart Forest there's much more food all the time there yeah. and that's why we've lost them from all the Potocarp hardwood forests by the time I came to New Zealand and um, We've now lost them from most of the northern beech forests as well. There's a small population in Canterbury. There's a reasonable population in the Landsborough Valley on the west coast, and there's just a few solitary birds in other places. There's a few solitary birds in Fiordland. 
And we've put them on islands now in Fiordland and Codfish Island, Fenuaho, and on Alver Island. So we're getting reasonably large populations there. And we've just colonised um, Secretary Island and Resolution Island with Mohua. So we expect them to become the largest populations. Okay. But all is not secure. You know, we've had, we haven't been completely successful in getting rid of stoats on Secretary. We don't know if we've got rid of all the predators on Resolution because even though they're over a kilometre from the nearest other land, occasionally the predators make it there. Are there plans to reintroduce them elsewhere? Mainland reintroductions? That's right, yes. We've, we've done these island ones, and now if we get these large populations going on secretary and resolution, we'll feel quite happy to try and restock and top up populations. So we did a transfer from the Catlins to the Huranui to top up their population a couple of years ago. Yeah. But in the Huranui, you know, they've got less than 20 birds and we're still struggling around about 20 to 40 birds. There's a lot of chance when the numbers are low. You might just get the wrong sex ratio. It's unusual for a New Zealand bird to be this brightly coloured. Yes, I mean, that's another thing that in the Northern Hemisphere we have all these brightly coloured birds with fantastic displays. In New Zealand, well, most of our birds aren't very colourful. Some of them are quite beautiful, like the tui. But, you know, there's not much red in our plumages, except for the Kia. These guys are nicely coloured. Can you tell the male and female apart? Not by just looking at them until, until you see their behaviours. The male will feed the female. The female will do begging behaviour. The plumages, the males are generally the brightest one, but that's only because the females don't live as long because they get eaten by the predators. If the female lived for um, six or seven years, she would be just as bright as the male. But generally, if you're looking at a family group now, you can say, well, that the brightest bird is the male. Mm. In the hand, you can't tell them apart by their measurements, but she has some calls which are only hers, so we can tell her apart by the calls when we're following them. Mm. Over what period of time was their decline? Was the Kiori a huge impact? We don't know. They were clearly right through the South Island at European arrival, so the Kiori wasn't completely fatal for them, okay. unlike the stitch bird in the North Island, where it was completely intolerant of Kiori. Right. So it was really shipwrack and things like that that got them? Yeah, and there's some interesting information from Atkinson about the arrival of rats. First the Norway rat came and then the ship rat. Now the ship rat's the one that does a lot of tree climbing and we suspect to be the main, main rat predator of forest nesting birds. And it's so arboreal that it actually lives in the trees and comes down to the ground to feed. So what we think went wrong in the Eglinton is perhaps the mohur on cold nights roost in holes and they might be the same holes that the rat's roosting in. Mm. And if they're not, they've also got the same story as when they're nesting as they get cornered by the rats. Yeah. 1080 use has been good study to see how it helps. The last operation we did, there was a beach mast, there was abundant food, the rat numbers went high, and we treated it with one kilo of prefeed and one kilo of poison, and we stopped the rat plague in its tracks. There was abundant food available, but we poisoned enough rats that we had breeding success, we had no re recorded rat mortality within the treated area. Right. Whereas in the untreated area, we lost nests to presumably rats. 
when I see a stoat, and you do see stoats about, <laughs> it's like they are the perfect killing machine for New Zealand. Well, that's probably true. And, and a great sexual habit of making sure there's masses of them when yeah. there's good food available. The sex life of stoats is probably another radio story. <laughs> if there's plenty of food, she can have a litter of up to 19 young. And the male will come along, find her in her nest with her young. The male will mate with her and also mate with all the blind young females even before they're independent. They will all store the sperm until around about August. And if the feeding conditions are good, they'll implant however many eggs the feeding conditions indicate. No need to go on a date after that. You've just got it real ready. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> so if there's the food available and they don't starve to death before August, they'll have a large litter. So you can go from 10 stoats to 100 stoats in one summer. One of the things that's come out of the stoat trapping is that we've got falcons back in this forest. When I came down here in the mid-80s, there was no falcon in this forest. Apparently that was partly a result of um, some keen duck hunters um, sorting out the problem as they saw it, but they, they passed on, I was told by their son. <laughs> really? They did get rid of the native falcon? Yeah, yeah, you find that humans are very intolerant of predators. But they, falcons take bugger all ducks. That's right, yeah, I mean, that's, they do take some, they can take paradise ducks. Female falcon yeah. can take on paradise ducks. Oh, I need a medal if they do that, that's well done. Well, they, give them they, a they, round they of breed, applause. Well, they breed well when they do that. Yeah, okay. But, yeah, since we did the stoat trapping, because even though it's a forest, the falcons, all the nests we've found in this forest have been on the ground. And they leave their chicks alone while they go and hunt for them. And even though the falcons guards the nests from people like me and uh, scalps you if it can, and I've never found any more aggressive falcons than the ones that have been in here. Um, I actually have had scratches in my head from these guys. But the stoat trapping's meant that their breeding's been successful, so they've managed to recolonise here from our predator operations. And they haven't uh, had any problems with um, poison side effects. Mm. The same with the moorpork. This evening's going to be a warm evening, and the last few nights when we've had warm evenings, we've had moorporks hawking for moss because the insects are emerging, right beside our camp here, right while we're eating dinner. Just a couple of metres away, the moorporks have been hawking moss. They're all on the paddock. So oh. there's abundant moorporks here. Well, that would be surprising to a lot of people who would assume that they'd be a significant bykill for 1080 because they eat mice and rats and stuff. That's right. And we're certainly very concerned about that, and we've done some studies on it. There is some mortality, but the some picture is that they do well mm. because of the loss of the predators who they get that they have losses at their nests because again more porks are whole nesters and yeah. falcon although they sometimes breed in trees they often breed on the ground and um, lose their nests we've got temperature data loggers in the forest here and I look at the temperatures and we've found that if one of the months in summer December January February the mean monthly maximum temperature in other words the highest temperature every day, averaged over a month, is more than a centi degree centigrade above the average, it's likely that the beech trees will flower. And that gives us 18 months warning of when the beech seed and the boom in forest productivity comes, so it can do our planning much earlier. To get rid of the rats? Yeah, to get rid of the rats or the stoats. 
Whereas in the past, our budgetary cycle didn't fit because we didn't know about the beech tree flowering and seeding until autumn because they flower in October. We haven't got a good way to measure that at the moment. And it's not really until the seed falls in autumn, March, April, May, that the food boom really gets going. There's some food boom from the flowering because there's invertebrates that eat them, but things don't really get going until autumn. And of course, we do our budgets for the year in January and February. Mm. That was part of the reason we had problems in 1999. We knew that we were going to have a catastrophe because we had this beach mast heavier all through the South Island than we'd recorded before. But because of the budget timing, we couldn't mobilise the resources to treat it. No. Yeah. This is wartime, though. You should be able to get supplies to the front. Well, that's what happened, of course, is that we had this defeat, if, in the wartime analogy, with not just the Eglinton almost going extinct from thousands of birds, but up in Marlborough they lost their birds on Mount Stokes. And they had a couple hundred birds there. They'd been doing good stoke trapping and good management. And what they thought there, Mount Stokes is the highest mountain in the Marlborough Sounds. It gets to um, 4,000 feet, just you know, 1,200, 1,300 metres. And even though it's forest almost right to the very top, the rats didn't come up because it's to the top, so we had this island of birds in the top. But that year not only was it warm enough to make the beech trees flower and seed really heavily, but it was also warm enough for the food to be abundant enough for the rats to go right to the top of the mountain, and they got every mohawk. So they went from a couple of hundred birds down to zero. So from those defeats, Government looked at it and said, right, oh, we're going to have Operation Arc, which is going to focus on blue duck mohua and orange-fronted parakeets, the rarest of the whole nesting birds, although the blue duck isn't, and in the beech forest. And so that's when we got extra funding to put in a very extensive grid of stoat traps. We've got 200 kilometres of stoat trap lines here, over a 1,000 trap stations. When we knew the next problem was going to come up, we were able to do Aerial 1080 to um, deal with it. We've done a lot of detailed work and I've seen with my own eyes that 1080 is good for Mohua. The populations just seem to be so vulnerable to fluctuating locally. That's a real problem, like what you described yeah. the Eglinton. Yeah, that's a real problem. That was a real crisis. Our management, what our management's doing is stopping big declines. Okay. We can't, we're not actually doing nurturing things to make them multiply faster. We actually have got a pretty good handle on their numbers. We can see um, the, just the numbers that we encounter, that there are hundreds of them here. In fact, we mm. think there's, you know, two to 3,000 of them. Well, it's tremendous work you're doing here. So dedicated. And good luck to all your team and good luck to the birds. Well, thank you for, thank you for your support. And, um, yes... Look at the DOC website, look at the Forest and Bird website, you can find out what's going on in these bird fronts. New Zealand is yours. Go there now. The Weekend Variety Wireless. Alrighty, folks, just a reminder that the program is podcast, and if you're listening to it on podcast, a very special hello. Well done, you've downloaded it. Uh, you can download each hour, each show hour by hour, Saturday and Sunday, and take it around with you and listen at your convenience. That's what it's for, and it comes without the ads as well. 
Okay, another album uh, from the class of 1978. Obviously, albums turning 40. A much lauded album, the commercial breakthrough album. I I think it's uh, safe to say for Patti Smith. Easter, you know the hit. Because the night. Grant Smithies and myself have done a little reading around. Uh, there's a great book called Please Kill Me about the era, uh, the late 70s, the punk era, especially in New York, and says some interesting, shall we say, testimony surrounding Patti Smith. Not all that you may think about her is the real deal. Uh, find out in the next hour. Oh, and we've, got, we've made ourselves a big fat archive of albums turning 40. There are tons of them there, so you can just delve in and have a listen to Grant Smithies and myself having various catfights about um, uh, albums turning 40 over the last few years we've been doing it. So that's at the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. New sport and weather coming up.